If you're looking to save some money on your wireless plan, take a look at Visible Wireless. They're a transparent wireless carrier with nothing to hide. If you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible where you can get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just 25 bucks a month, taxes and fees included. One-line wireless, just 25 bucks a month with taxes and fees included. That's unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Switch now at Visible.com. You shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. Like Visible, the wireless company making wireless visible. Monthly rate on the Visible plan. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. What's happening, friends? Welcome to Podcast Unlocked, episode 415. It is October 14th, 2019. Uh, this week, we are very pleased to be joined by a couple of the developers from Obsidian. We're going to talk about The Outer Worlds, the big RPG that is on its way to us very, very soon. Stay tuned for all that and more coming up on Podcast Unlocked. Podcast Unlocked. I don't know. I hope that there's like a weird thing going on with the graphics that I hope is not coming through in the final thing. But anyway, I'm Ryan McCaffrey, Brandon Tyrell, you know, to my right today. And that's because we have two awesome guests to our left. Uh, Leonard Boyarski, the co-director on The Outer Worlds at Obsidian, and uh, Natai Podar, the narrative director, designer, or director, which... I'll take direct. Take either one. (laughs) Take either one. Uh, Either way, gentlemen, thank you both so much for being here uh, this is great. I know you're on your your big media tour. Got to got to promote the game now, right? Got to get out there. Yep. Uh, so, Brandon, you and I have been keeping a close eye on this game. You actually went out when it was first announced. You I were did. the first person at IGN to go down and see this game. That's true. Um, and it has definitely captured the IGN audience interest. We've seen a lot of great reception to it. But guys, just it, it's a busy Q4. A lot of games coming out. For, what's the Cliff's Notes version of what The Outer Worlds is, just to refresh everybody's memory? The 30-second elevator pit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Leonard. It's, it's a classic Obsidian RPG where uh, players drive the story through their choices. Um, it's a dystopia, mm. a corporate dystopia. Um, it's very much a retro kind of future. Um, people have played these kind of games before, but we always put like a very specific kind of personal spin on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, I, I got a chance to play a bit of it back around E3 time. Uh, I, I want to ask about the character creator, but there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot. Like, if you've played Fallout New Vegas, for instance, from Obsidian, you will probably feel right at home. And in fact, Leonard, I actually wanted to, I was trying to do some prep for this interview, and I found a quote from you in 2004, because you, your, your timeline, I guess, to preface this, Interplay, uh, Blizzard, and Troika was before Blizzard. Tro- yeah, so, and then back now, back to Obsidian. So you've been around Fallout and around. You mean co-creator of the original Fallout? Yeah. Uh, and and you've been around the RPG, the Western RPG game for a long time. 
And in 2004, you'd said, to be perfectly honest, I was extremely disappointed that we did not get the chance to make the next Fallout game. This has nothing to do with Bethesda. It's just that we've always felt that Fallout was ours, and it was just a technicality that Interplay... Sorry, the accent there was the emphasis was mine. Uh, It was just a technicality that Interplay happened to own it. It sort of felt as if our child had been sold to the highest bidder, and we had to just sit by and watch. And so I bring that up because, you know, having... Me having played The Outer Worlds, you haven't seen it. I mean, it's there are definitely some, at least some general similarities to New Vegas. Yeah. So, is do you look at The Outer Worlds as your chance to make your make another Fallout game in a sense? Um, in a way, uh, me and Tim and Jason and several other people were kind of off in a corner back at Interplay making the game we wanted to make with really no input from anybody else. It was all just, we oh, could, nice. yeah, it's really great when, you know, it's, I had been in the industry for like two, three years at that point and like, Oh, here, make a game, anything you want. Um, and you know, getting the chance to do that is very rare. And we just, yeah. you know, so that's why I felt we felt a lot of ownership for it because you know, it was one of these things that was just our creative vision at the time. Um, so there's a lot of just us in outer worlds as well, which is why there's a lot of similarities um, but that style of game, you know, plus, you know, the chance to get make an IP from the ground up um, is definitely something that was really appealing and, and was enough to drag me away from Blizzard and have me do this. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, well, what's interesting is you, you know, you have your thumbprint on the original Fallout, right? And then at some point during that sort of path of through the series, you know, it branched off with Bethesda and whatnot. But I'm curious, sort of with the Outer Worlds, it's this is sort of yours interpretation moving out of fallout so I, I wanted to know really what the outer worlds learned from from sort of your versions of fallout your past fallout games that's interesting um i think for the most part i feel like we've built a more expansive universe if we get the opportunity to make more uh uh games in this universe i feel the like outer, there's a lot of worlds yeah there's a lot of different places you can go yeah. um in fallout you're kind of you know you get you're stuck in the post-apocalyptic world uh, in the second one, uh, we designed a lot of the second one before we left to form Troika. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried pushing it forward to 70, 80 years later when civilization was was building back up. But even that was kind of probably the furthest you could take it. Yeah. So I think there's that, and I think that just over the over the years we've looked back on what we've did what we did originally on Fallout and just figured, you know, oh, if there is, you know, I could tweak this or you know do this a little bit differently today. Um, I mean, one of the one of the biggest things was when we first made Fallout, we couldn't you couldn't do a first person um, game that had a lot of fidelity, visual yeah. fidelity, um, you know, besides turn based and all that. Just right. in terms of like I was the art director originally before I got involved in all the design and I just wanted like a certain amount of detail and just crispness to the art that you couldn't get in 3D. Um, so that's why we made one of the reasons we made the decision to go with an isometric game. Mm. So the fact that somebody else got to do a 3D first-person version of Fallout was, oh, I wanted to do that. <laughs> Things a little. Yeah, <laughs> so, well, you know, if, on the other hand, you know, I was able to play a Fallout game and have no idea what was going to happen yeah. on this planet. <laughs> for so, the first right. time ever, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that was kind of cool. And then, you know, New Vegas, done, but, yeah. but <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Natai, Leonard touched on, you know, creating something new. You're sitting down. What is the process when you have a blank slate for a new IP, a new world, we're we're kind of like what's the what's the like pinpoint beginning of the universe big bang theory moment for for this project? Well, from a narrative perspective. From a narrative perspective, I wasn't actually there when Tim and Leonard got the idea and mm-hmm. said, "Okay, whatever this idea is, it will turn into the outer worlds." Yeah. 
but uh, I know that it can seem a little bit intimidating to have this blank sheet of paper and feeling like you could put anything on it. But actually, there is a, a kind of method to our madness. We, we try to think structurally because there are certain things we absolutely know we want the game to have and therefore that we want the, the story to have. Um, it is a game that emphasizes player choice. Mm. So we had to create uh, some kind of antagonistic faction that you also have to have the opportunity to join. Uh, we wanted the players to feel like they could explore the world, they could um, take in the sites, they could uh, uh, learn about the setting um, by exploring it, by interacting with all kinds of colorful characters. So one thing we tried to do very early in the project was identify our sources of inspiration. Like, what are we looking for, looking for to kind of give us ideas and um, give this game some identity? The original Fallout's obviously had a lot to do with that. Uh, Obsidian worked on New Vegas, mm. so there was a lot of fallout from 1 and 2 and also New Vegas in the DNA of this game. But we went outside that also. like We looked at Firefly. We looked at Deadwood. We looked at a lot of the art and history from the end of the 19th century to the early 20th century to kind of create this Gilded Age aesthetic. And then that went into the gameplay. That went into the, into the art. It even went into the writing. Yeah. Is that does that become like a sort of a snowball effect for you on the narrative side, where as these other pieces are starting to fall into place, is it just like fueling ideas for you? And as far as the the story and the characters, what it does is it gives us direction. Like it gives us a, a kind of core. We know where the aesthetic sits. We know that it draws from Firefly. We know that it draws from Fallout. We know that it draws from a lot of industrial, um, Gilded Age, robber baron esque ideas of capitalism and corporations. So that's our direction. That's kind of the framework of the narrative. And then yes, from from drawing from that source, we can we can come up with all kinds of characters. We can come up with our quests, our setting. Um, everything kind of draws from that. Mm. Do you want to tell them about your favorite way to play the game? Oh, I think I already have, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I'd be curious to hear their take on sort of... When you guys were nice enough to have me up to the studio um, for the reveal, uh, the thing that I really left with, and, and Leonard, I don't know, I don't actually know if you remember, we had a really awesome conversation about comedy and humor and writing mm -hmm. humor into a game and how hard it is, especially in a video game, because you can't really hit momentum. Um, you know, pacing is tough in a video game yes. in general, especially when you it's not linear and players can make a ton of different Absolutely, choices. Absolutely, yeah. And in addition to pacing being tough, humor is notoriously hard to get right in video games. Um, but I left with the impression that you you really designed the game around that sort of idea of player choice, and one of those player choices that they can do is just to be a total moron, uh, or maybe not moron, but an idiot, uh, the naive hero. And I and I say that I think of uh, Harm, uh, Han Solo without the charm, or Nathan Fillion without the, uh, the you know wits. the wit, really. Yeah, it's just that. What's it? so yeah, uh, having being able to play a dumb character. Uh, and set your intelligence to low and um, just going the funny route. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned those characters. I think internally among the writers, the inspiration for the dumb archetype was uh, Zab Brannigan. Oh, perfect. Plus um, yeah. uh, Jane. Jane from yeah. Firefly. So just 
Smash oh. those two characters together. Because for some reason, let them captain a ship, and there you go. <laughs> we we really didn't want to go the monosyllabic route yeah. that we went in Fallout. So we wanted to try something a little bit different. So you're basically just clueless. Yeah. <laughs> and what what I really liked about it is your your companions and the NPC quest givers and all that. You had you had illustrated pretty well that they remember these stupid choices you make to the point where when you originally approach them, they're like, "Oh, hero, the galaxy is on fire. You're here to save." us and then after three or four or five dumb choices in a row they're just like shaking their keys in front of you <laughs> like a baby um, so I do love the idea that you know you build this own narrative with your character by the choices that you make and I love by the end of the game just no one trusts you with a weapon at any kind You're like oh that's a sharp object you know? <laughs> you know? that's why we like to say that it's a player driven story mm-hmm. as opposed to a story that gives you choices yeah um, the the way even beyond just the choices, the way um, we wanted players to be able to play the game any way they wanted. Yeah. Any kind of hero or character they f- they could conceive of, we wanted to support that. And to support it um, in a way that didn't feel like we were trying to kind of keep nudging you back in a certain direction or another. Back toward the hero yeah. type. Is that harder to do? I mean, you, you brought up a great point, the distinction between a player-driven game and a game that gives you choices as your player. Because I remember, in, I, I figure in the latter, you go to a quest giver, uh, you can choose A, B, or C, and depending on that choice, brings off you know your branching uh, options. But in what you're describing is the choice that you make sort of changes what the NPC then, how they then interact with you later on. So it seems like there's a sub-layer of branching optimization that goes along with it. Well... Me and Tim have been doing this for a very long time. So, oh, Natai, Natai, how would you answer that since this is your uh, first time? Yeah, right up this. on that microphone, too. Yeah. Bring it close oh. to you so we can hear every word you're saying. How's that? That's good. Okay. Thank you. Um, it's a complex process because, yes, we do have to support the player's ability to play just about any character mm-hmm. we want. You want to be a benevolent good guy. You can, you can be like a, a kind of mercenary that's only in it for the money. You can be a total psychopath. Um, you can just play an idiot if you want. And they have to be cohesive consistent choices that we offer throughout the game and we also have to like mask the fact that npcs still have quests to give you right um what do you mean by mask well imagine in a typical rpg the way branching narrative is going to work is you get a couple of choices Mm -hmm. uh they they illustrate your character's attitude and the npc just gives you the quest anyway yeah so it tends to feel a little bit like flavor we have to do both npcs have quests to give you but the way they express those quests to you, uh, the way you accept those quests, um, the way they even talk to you has to react to your personality. It has to react to the factions you've joined. Sometimes it even reacts to your reputation. So the answer is, like, how do we do that from a narrative perspective? We, we just kind of have to do everything. Yeah. Uh, we have to know, we have to cover the basics, right? Every NPC has a specific purpose in the world, and that purpose needs to be strong enough so that any character coming up to talk to that NPC at any point in the game, no matter what direction they come in, because as you said, we can't reasonably predict what the player has done before this. Mm -hmm. It still has to work. It still has to make sense. But at the same time, we want them to feel reactive. We want them to feel like they remember your choices. Um, We want them to feel like organic, real characters. And this is something that we're really hoping players will enjoy about our game is um, you can talk to anybody in this game, and they're more than just quest givers. Mm. They have personalities. They have backstories. Probably have some funny line or two. They have something to yeah. give you so that when you go and talk to someone, you're not really metagaming. You don't feel like, oh, I'm just here to collect whatever quest you have to give me and I'm going to go on my way. It's like, 
part of your story. I mean, that's uh, everything that Natalia just said, but in a very general sense, it's kind of like we outline mm-hmm. the game and then start building up the characters. So these characters obviously have the quests, but it's more, you know, if I came to talk to this character, uh, this NPC is a specific type of character, how are they going to react? Mm-hmm. Um, so then we just start kind of riffing on that. And it's just, it's a lot of fun um, coming up with the different ways. And that's where the humor comes from. Yeah. It's just, you know, us cracking each other up. And then when we get Tim to laugh, we know we've, you know, we're on the right <laughs> yeah. path. So, so it's, it sounds like it's like the whose line is it anyway yeah. of video game so design. Where it's like you've got bit, a scenario yeah. and then we're going to There's a lot of that. Like early in the game, we were trying to figure out where is the humor? Where does it yeah. sit? Is it more Firefly? Is it more Simpsons? Is it more Futurama? Is it something way darker than that? Is it Coen Brothers? And the answer is yes. It's, it's all of it. <laughs> yes. Um, I would love to see but, a Coen Brothers. But the process is... The more we experiment, the more we figure out what works. The more we figure out what works, the easier it gets to write more of this kind of stuff. So a lot of the writing we did early in the project was just, let's just find out how we define our humor. And the answer to that definition is what makes everybody else in the office laugh and have a good time. Um, It's a very organic process that way. And uh, I... At the at the heart of all this is, of course, the, whatever character you make. So uh, the thing that struck me when I sat down to play with the game a while back is the character creator is is deep. Like if you're if you're like a Fallout fan of you know the the more recent 3D games, you will be very happy with you have an, an immense amount of choice at the beginning of the game. So how like where do you draw the line with like because you guys have well over a dozen traits and and, and skills and things to play with. Like, one of, well, one of the things we were doing there, um, you know, you, we have the, the thing where the way you spend points is different from a lot of other RPGs, at least until you get to 50. Uh, we wanted to kind of have a, um, a kind of cascading thing where even though you do have a lot of choices up front, you're not making all choices about your character. Um, you know, it's a couple levels in or several levels in before you start to specialize. Mm. Um, per, you don't have to pick perks up front. Um, so we kind of wanted this this thing where you're, def- and then of course flaws, you're developing your your character as you go and further um, defining who you are in the world through play style and, and you know, what kind of, um, you know, character you are in terms of what kind of lines you're going to pick when you're talking to an NPC. Um, we just wanted to kind of like, even though there's a lot of depth, like you're saying, we wanted a way for players who didn't want to go too deep into it to just jump right in as well. Yeah. Do you, do you prefer that, that sort of like upfront in, in the idea, the pantheon of character creation systems, um, the idea that you sort of loosely define what you're going to be throughout the game upfront versus something that sort of like more like a Skyrim or, or where you organically develop based on your actions that you choose? Because Outer Worlds does a little bit of both, right? Like one of my favorite things about it is if you get particularly a nasty bite from a you know, a space dog, then you are afraid of space dogs moving forward, right? Which is such a cool idea. But a a good chunk of that character creation happens up front. Do you find like there's value in that versus other other approaches you could take? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we learned from from Fallout way back in the original Fallout was, you know, you could put a bunch of points into energy weapons and not find an energy weapon for half the game. (laughs) So we kind of wanted to avoid that this time around. And those were the kind of things after doing this over and over again, we were trying to hone it down to we want you to make choices up front that are meaningful immediately. And then as you go, they become, you know, you get more choices as you go to that become more meaningful as you go, as you, you're creating yeah, your characters, um, you're moving along. To that point, uh, it is it is understandable to get a bit of choice paralysis, even in a game like Skyrim, where like, oh, I have all these options. Uh, if, I, if I put points in this now, am I just going to miss out later on? Am well, I doing it wrong? Yeah, especially up front, right? right. It's like buying a timeshare you haven't seen yet. Right. You just don't know what you're going <laughs> to exactly. get. Exactly, and, and our goal is, 
Uh, well, our goal is that you can you can really play anything. Like you want to be a generalist and just put points anywhere. The game is still viable. You can do it. You want to be an absolute specialist in just diplomacy and just talking to people. We have a great path through the game for that too. So we've kind of emphasized that there is no correct way to place your points. Now, my and this is a perspective from narrative, but the way I like to think about character creation, for me, character creation done right is if you look at the character creation screen and you feel inspired to make a character that expresses something that you want to play. Um, if you look at all the options and you say, I want to be a heroic gunslinger that's really good at lying and is an excellent leader and leads through inspiration, you can do that. Like, if the character creation process inspires in you the desire to role play, mm -hmm. then I consider that successful. How do you achieve that? How do I achieve that desire to role play? That desire to create a character creation system that speaks to a player on a menu. So I, some of that is going to be down to our, okay, there, there are two questions. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to pull out the no, hard this is good. No, 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 no. I'm interested to hear them. I mean, these are, these are two things <laughs> happening here. Leonard starts taking notes. Right I believe that just about anybody who plays video games and enjoys having some kind of a player fantasy mm. is already drawn toward role playing. Yeah. Um, our character creation system has its roots in old school role playing. Um, I know Tim is a big fan of GURPS, yeah. uh, Steve Jackson games. Um, so like the pen and paper style exists to uh, give a medium to a player who wants to express an idea. So we have taken that as kind of our skeleton. Uh, and some of that exists in, in Fallout as well with a mm. special stat system and everything. So the goal from the outset is players have a fantasy of a kind of hero they want to play, even if it's somebody completely mundane and normal. <laughs> and we just, we create a system that allows them to do that. Now, how do you make that system fun? How do you make it engaging? Some of that is down to our UI. And I think our yeah. UI team did a really good job making that feel good. I think some of it, our narrative team uh, worked on making the character creation process part of the story itself. Uh, when you mm. make your character, uh, your ally in the beginning, Dr. Phineas Wells, mm -hmm. is stealing you from a ship, and he's kind of going through the ship manifest saying, no, no, oh, this one looks good, this one. And everything oh. he says is a commentary <laughs> on your stat selection. But it's also positive reinforcement. It's mostly yep. positive reinforcement. <laughs> you did a great job making this character, <laughs> like, so I'm going to bust If you set your dexterity out. to high, it's like, oh, you could be really good. You're a sharpshooter. I could use that. Yeah. If you set your intelligence to low or your strength to low, he's like, oh, man, maybe you won't digest our food too well. That's okay. You know, so like oh he's God. reacting. How many video lines did you have to record for that? Three hundred something. <laughs> and the voice actor killed it. Really? But um, Natai wrote them, so he, he deserves the praise on that one. <laughs> um, but the point is, by having this reinforcement of an NPC talk to you as you're creating your character, we are trying to reinforce the idea that this is a role-playing game, and we are already responding to your choices. Yeah. So it's okay. There's no wrong choice. Just. Play whatever you think is cool. That's awesome. and, and this gets to uh, something that I've heard sort of, I don't think anybody's like, it's not a thing, but I've heard this, I've seen this mentioned where some people are like, oh, because Leonard, you had, you had mentioned uh, a while back that you know, this is not a, a Witcher 3 150-hour yeah. type of deal. Like this is, this is a, it's a much more replayable through all these player-driven choices. You know, is that, is that a, I feel like people think they want a hundred fit like they want more for their money but in in your game you're going for it through a unique experience each time based on based on the player choice yes yeah and we really wanted to um 
maximize our resources and time we had to develop this game. So we made a choice to have a smaller um, scoped game. Um, one of the things that we're seeing there is that when people finish the game, they want to jump right back in. They don't yeah. feel like the last third of the game was a slog that they would right. just never want to do again. Or like, you know, you never get to a point where like, isn't this game over yet? Um, I just feel like it's it's if it's tighter, it's smaller, it's it's more um, it's easier for us to craft mm -hmm. and not have to, you know, just kind of like shoving a bunch of content every corner of, of a giant map. Um, so it's a much more handcrafted experience. Do you think that and I'm going to use the phrase proof of concept, but that's not what I mean by it. Do you think that the smaller, tighter Outer Worlds experience um, is sort of setting you guys up to to really flesh out the world that you could potentially go in the, like Ryan said, 150-hour, you know, Witcher 3, Fallout 4, or, you know, Ubisoft open world? I think some of it has to do with how people enjoy the game, whether they, you know, whether they feel like it's a valuable experience or yeah. whether they feel like, you know, oh, no, I wanted this to be twice as long. Right. Um, you know, we've played it several times. I've played it three or four times. I think Tim's on his 16th playthrough. Um, and he's still, you know, laughing and finding things he hadn't seen before. Um, so I think it's a really great experience. So I'll just be interested to hear how um, players enjoy it or you know, what the feedback from them is. Well, on that note, I, I always love asking developers this, like, especially in a game like this, what's been, can you guys off the top of your head, either one of you uh, or both of you have a, have like a crazy anecdote from playtesting, like something either unexpected or, or hilarious that happened in the course of playtesting the game where it's, it's just maybe something that on, from a design side, you just either didn't plan for or didn't expect. Like, is there any, any sort of weird stories from playtesting? about the non-digital rearranger? No, go ahead. No, go okay. for it. I like where this is going already. Mandibular rearranger. So we have science weapons in mm -hmm. our game, and there yeah. is a selection of science weapons which have cool, wacky effects, like one of which is the shrink ray, because why would you not want to build that if you're Which wacky? the voice actually gets yes, higher. The pitch of the voice gets higher or lower. Yep. Which that was a suggestion that came from our QA team, and we all looked at ourselves and we said, we should totally do that. <laughs> so, yes, you can have... Anyway, the mandibular rearranger... Uh, came out of a bug where, for some reason, and NPCs that you attacked, their faces would get wildly warped <laughs> in unpredictable ways, and, like, the bone structure would just go wild. So oh my I think was it our They designer? were posting uh, up on Slack uh, people, especially QA, was posting pictures of these horrific-looking, nightmare-inducing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> images of characters, and we're all, oh, we should do that. We should, <laughs> we should make that happen on purpose. So the mandibular rearranger is a science weapon, which if you swing at someone, will actually rearrange their face permanently. <laughs> That's fantastic. Something randomized and, and horrifying and nightmare-inducing. And this was all based off a... A bug. A bug, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, That's now literally yeah, a, a feature. feature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. You made the bug to feature hammer. I'm oh, sure every developer so wants the, the keys to that one. Uh, so we'll let you guys go in a few minutes. I know you've got a game to finish, game to promote, but uh, Natai, I wanted to ask you about... It's funny, we were going to cover this on Unlocked here yeah. last week. We ran out of time, but you may have seen the uh, Writers Guild of America decided uh, to... to, to Leave video games out of their awards and out of their recognition this year. They're just they're dropping the video game category. They say they're leaving the door open for to have it again. But you know, as a as a narrative designer, as someone who's I mean, th this has got to sting a little bit, right? I mean, you know, because games are an important, viable, uh, as as significant as film or TV. And uh, as someone who's does this for a living, how do you feel about this? Um. It's disappointing, uh, not just because, well, it's always nice to compete, and it's always nice to, like, throw your hat in the ring and sure. do what 
uh, but from my perspective, just speaking as a writer, it's always nice to share your stuff. And the Writers Guild of America in the past, they have uh, supported uh, video game writing. Um, uh, Obsidian was nominated last year mm. with Pillars of Eternity 2. We were looking forward to making uh, another shot at that nomination. Um, without, I, I can't speak for that decision. I, I don't know what went into it. I know they still support the video game caucus, and there are uh, many members of the Writers Guild who do specialize in video games. I was just hoping to personally like get them our script, see what they thought of it, make a few people laugh. Like that's always yeah. that's always the point of view of the writers. You do what you do because you want other people to look at it, enjoy it, have a good time. And if it doesn't win an award, that's fine. But uh, it's just disappointing to not be able to compete that way. That said, um, I do feel like there are many ways to be recognized and to compete for recognition. Uh, now more than ever before, there's VGAs at the end of the year. There's uh, the, the BAFTAs, BAFTAs yeah. are very well respected and and highly competitive. Yeah. Um. So so we will see what happens. Um. I think it's, I think it's unfortunate, but it's not really something I can directly speak to because I'm not really sure. What CC is more just kind of a speed bump than than any sort of. Uh. Yeah. I I think uh, I think it's kind of a missed opportunity uh, for both of us. I think I would have loved to share our script to the Writers Guild. Uh, I imagine we would have been competitive this year, but... Yeah, I, I was really disappointed because our writers really knocked it out of the park. You guys did a fantastic job on this game, and it um, it would have just been nice to, yeah. to be in there. Especially something so different, right? You don't get comedy RPGs very often. True. So, yeah, I, I hear you on that very one. Very true. Uh, now, Leonard, you, 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 you also were a significant part of one of my favorite games of the last 10 years, very which is excited. Diablo 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were, you were uh, the lead world designer there uh so i just where would you where do you want to see now that you're not there anymore where are you kind of hoping to see an inevitable diablo 4 go i know we're i know we're off brand here for a second but how can i not i have to take the opportunity to ask you about diablo because you were a key part of diablo 3 um there's a lot of stuff we were actually talking about i don't know if they're going to keep any of it um even throughout the development of diablo 3 about you know where we could go with the series yeah um I'm not there anymore. Chris Metzen isn't there anymore. Some, I think, some of the people who are there are still working on the on the, on whatever is going to come next. Um, so I'm just as in the dark as everybody else. Yeah. Um, but I would hate to speculate in case I remember it. something. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> it's fair. Um, I do have you know my preferences for where I'd like to see it go. I think we we kind of seeded a couple things that I'd like to see pay off at some point. But yeah. I'm, I, who knows. Like Ryan said, I mean, I I loved Diablo three. I loved Reaper of Souls. That was yeah, that was huge. Um, I thought that ship got righted re- in a really nice way. Um, and you know, there are all those little dangling story bits like uh, Imperius and Chang and like all that stuff that I would love to see pay off as well. And who knows? Maybe this is the year we actually get an announcement. I know every year I say <laughs> this is the year Diablo four is announced at BlizzCon. Yeah, BlizzCon. Blizzard's got maybe some other. We don't issues have to talk about hands, what's but, going on um, in the news with Blizzard. <laughs> so back to you guys. Has I, I of course also for those of you who may have uh, either <clears throat> forgotten or what have you, but you are you are some of the newest Microsoft employees. The acquisition announced a year ago of, of Obsidian being acquired by Microsoft. So, how like have things changed? How's like the vibe at the studio? How how is it being Microsoft employees? Um, well, technically, we're still employees of Obsidian. Obsidian is a subsidiary, I okay. guess. I'm not quite sure the business, <laughs> yeah, um, the way it's all structured. But um, it it really hasn't changed for us. I don't think it's changed much for anybody, but it yeah. really hasn't changed for us because we're working with Private Division on this game still. Right. They've been with us, with us from the very beginning. This is going to be published by them still. 
Um, they've been a fantastic publisher all the way through. Um, so we'll see what happens after this. And but now, yeah, I don't know if it was like sort of a, any sort of concession for the the fact that the Xbox, the Microsoft acquisition happened. But importantly for gamers, this game is launching directly into Xbox Game Pass. So if you're a Game Pass subscriber, you'll be able to play it as just part of your subscription right from day one. Which is so great because there are so many people out there that don't want to jump into a first-person RPG, right? Or or wouldn't have, uh, <clears throat> this game wouldn't have been sourced to them sort of organically the way it will with Game Pass. Um, are, do you guys, do you, do you have feelings on that about, about how, you know, this system is allowing you to, to sort of share spread the good word of the outer world. I think it's really great because uh, one of the things we wanted to do with this game was to kind of open it up to hopefully a bigger yeah. um, segment of the market. Um, we really feel like we're we're RPG evangelists and we really feel like if more people got to play, you know, a game that had real um, reactive story, um, a lot more people would really be into it. But, you know, like we talked about earlier, it could be a little bit daunting seeing the character creation. So in that aspect, you know, people who could jump in there and play around with the game, I think they'll they'll find something they really like. And that was also part of our um, not making a hundred hour epic, yeah. you know, where it's like people feel like if, if I've invested, you know, 10, 15 hours, 20 hours, whatever in this game, I want to know that, you know, I can see the end inside. I don't yeah, want to, I don't want to be like, I have to keep playing this. It's kind of like, you know how it is. Once you, start, once you, once you started <laughs> down the road of playing a game, you don't want to give it up. So yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of like you're trapped in there, but I really hope it opens up the, uh, you know, the genre to more people. Cause I feel like, I, obviously, I've been doing this for a long time, but I'm I'm sold on on what a great thing a, a story-driven RPG is, or a player-driven story of an RPG is. Yeah, I, I think this is a good Game Pass title. It's uh, the length is just enough that if you want to experiment with it and pick it up, you know, it's not like you're committing to, to Witcher 3. Like, right. I mean, I was playing 25 hours in, you're leaving the tutorial. I was going to say I was yeah. playing Persona 5, but I was really committing the next three months of my life. <laughs> to Persona. Like, we're not doing that great game, but it's a huge. Commitment. Right. Um, Outer Worlds is not like that, and it's also I, I would say it's pretty beginner friendly. Like if you're experienced, play on hard mode. But if you just want to dive in, experience a good story, maybe try out an RPG and see a, the kind of game that doesn't we, like we don't punish you for taking the wrong choices. We just want to role play with you through the game. If that sounds like a good idea for you, um, it's not a huge commitment to play it on Game Pass. I think. All right. Awesome. So last, absolute most important question before you guys go. Yeah. Outer Worlds. Outer Wilds. Nobody blinked. This has been. Do you guys confuse it as much as we? The last four months. <laughs> oh. yeah. uh, we don't confuse it as much. We were. <laughs> yeah. I, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, we sure. went through a ton of names <laughs> and we settled on that one. And they were supposed to come out along. Yeah. <laughs> they were supposed to be way clear. We were supposed to be way clear of them. But then development happened. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. Uh, well, uh, Natalia Padar, Leonard Boyarsi, thank you guys so much. Yeah, the Outer nice. Worlds is out uh, on October 25th. 25th on in any place you can buy video games, but also Xbox Game Pass. Yeah. So uh, there's no excuse not to play this game. Uh, I've really enjoyed what I've played. I know, Brandon, you feel the same way. So, mm -hmm. you know, good stuff. Uh, congratulations on launch, guys. Thank and you. can't wait to see, uh, can't wait to just dig more into this into this thing. I don't I don't even know what kind of player, what kind of character I want to do first. Like I I, I if I can sp I like to be able to specialize. So I love that that's being supported. I, I think I might go like heavy conversationalist, like to yeah. be able to accomplish things silver tongue just, devil. Oh yeah. yeah. Because yeah. not a lot of RPGs let me do that. That seems like a thing that has had fallen by the wayside in a lot of ways in favor of action. So That's that's great. And real quick, what how do you guys play it? 
I always start by playing a talking stealth character, but that's half because I'm having to test it out as well. (laughs) Um, No, but I like that. And exactly. I like the fact that we're still supporting that. To me, that's a a core pillar of of a great RPG like this is to let players have that talking character. Um, So that's I always dive in there because that's where you get the most story or get the most character development, at least in my opinion. Yeah. I've always been in favor for this game of science and leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those are the two skill sets that are the most Outer Worlds-esque. They're the most pulpy. You get to have yeah. cool science weapons, and uh, you know you get to order your companions around. Um, <laughs> always a good time. Yeah, and I'm going to play it as a beautiful idiot that just <laughs> yeah, <nice>. runs <laughs> screaming down the hallway towards the stormtroopers. Fantastic. Uh, so, yeah. uh, guys, thank you so much. Thank we'll be you. right back Appreciate with it. some more Unlocked right after this. Welcome back, and yes, it's just me, Ryan McCaffrey. Uh, Brandon is doing some other video game capture stuff with the Outer Worlds devs. I want to thank them, uh, Leonard and, and Natai. That was that was great. I hope you enjoyed that segment. It's a lot of fun sitting down with those guys, and and just it's always fascinating to me to talk to professional game developers who just think about these things, think about games and and the way we approach games in a very different way than we as players do. So thanks to them, and I am very much looking forward to playing more of The Outer Worlds. Uh, yeah, so we've got Miranda uh, had another commitment. She's She's got another project. I don't know where Mark is, can't find him. Destin's busy, and then Brandon, as I said, is off with them. So you're stuck with me. Sorry. <laughs> Fortunately... There's, uh, but there's some stuff I want to talk about. There's some good stuff to cover here. First up, you've probably heard about this because it is trending basically worldwide. Fortnite literally imploded on purpose. So you may have seen the video. If not, we've got it on IGN. Is the the end of the world, the end of the map in Fortnite. Everything just went, got sucked into a a, a black hole of nothingness. And out of that, what will come? Maybe a, a chapter two, a season two, whatever it's going to be. Uh, but there will be new Fortnite and probably not the same map, right? I mean, it's it's probably going to be something new, which is what's really interesting to me about that is the the boldness of it in that. And in fact, I salute Epic because, you know, to take arguably, if not the most successful game and the hottest game on the planet, one of them, one of the top three, and to effectively kill it for you know, temporarily, but it is it is purposely not playable for the time being. But they have created an event out of it, and you know the 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 key now I think for them will be managing how long to keep it offline. You know, they've, it, it's going to be a tough line to walk, I would imagine, between the uh, the idea of of keeping it offline and having it be like this mysterious event versus people just going, okay, I don't care anymore. I'm done with Fortnite. Bye Fortnite. You know, just it, there's a, a, you know, I don't think anything like this has ever really been done in a, as an event like this in a game before, not in any MMO, MMORPG that I can think of. So uh, I, I, I salute the the boldness of it by Epic and, and I'll be very curious to see not only what comes back, but what the reaction to it is when the game does come back and in what shape that it's going to take. 
Uh, next this week, couple, just a couple more things to tell you about before we get rolling. Thankfully, the, yeah, the interview ended up going. I had planned to talk to them for 15 or 20 minutes, but we ended up chatting for almost 35 minutes, which was time well spent. That was really good, good stuff. So uh, let's see. Text filters. This is new this week. Text filters are coming to Xbox Live. Microsoft announced new customizable text filters for the Xbox platform, giving gamers more control over the type of content they see in their private messages, both from friends and non-friends, when they are engaged in the Xbox community. With this update, gamers will be able to choose from four different levels of filtration, friendly, medium, mature, and unfiltered. Uh, Hey, I host that show. (laughs) So they can decide, based on their personal preferences, what's acceptable and what isn't in the text-based messages they receive across Xbox Live. And here's uh, an important one for those of you who are parents out there. Parents will also have the ability to manage the settings for their child's account with this update. So I say thank you to Microsoft for this. I think this is a good thing. I mean, for me, I personally don't even allow messages from non-friends. But uh, for most people that probably do, this is a great way to, to help probably cut down on the junk and <laughs> stuff that you don't want to see. So uh, another gamer-friendly move from Microsoft. It's again, it's one of those little things. Just you know, there, it's not like there have been a ton of you know the big stuff, backwards compatibility. But this, this one of those little ones. That these hundred little things that Microsoft has done and continues to do to make the Xbox platform and the Xbox ecosystem a better place for everybody. And then the last big news story I wanted to make sure to cover this week is this one: a new Apparently new, I mean a new game, but an apparently new non-Hitman game is in development at IO Interactive. IO and Warner Brothers, again partnering, they have announced, uh, because Warner Brothers, if you remember, IO was owned by IDOS, which became Square Enix, or, you know, was bought, IDOS was bought by Square, so IO became a Square Enix studio, and they did a Hitman game or three there, and then IO actually spun off. They they left. They were able to negotiate their exit from uh, from Square, and they were able to retain the Hitman IP in that. So it was a a clean sort of no no fault divorce <laughs> that they separated. And we we obviously we've gotten uh, two new Hitman games: the the episodic uh, season one, and then the, most recently a season two. Which or Hitman 2, which I reviewed and quite liked, and uh, and that Hitman 2 was published by Warner Brothers, so they are going to partner again on a quote new console and PC game experience that seems to be separate from what they've previously created. While they're keeping tight-lipped on what exactly is in the works, we do know that IO Interactive's two studios in Copenhagen and Malmo will be developing the game. IO Interactive CEO Hakan Abruk said in a press release that the teams are currently staffing up to begin development in earnest. Quote, as we embark on this exciting project to create a new universe together, for, uh, a new universe for IOI together with Warner Brothers, we're currently looking for ambitious talent to join our team in Copenhagen and Malmo Studios for this extraordinary journey. So if you're wondering, well, okay, what is, what is IO Interactive's track record outside of Hitman, it's a bit of a mixed bag, I would say. 
their most recent, it's been a long time since they've done a, a non-Hitman game. Uh, their last one was Kanan Lynch 2. And then obviously before that, there was the first Kanan Lynch. And that was, if you remember, that was the 360 era. They had, they had really hoped that that was going to become a new pillar for them, this sort of co-op driven shooter. That was, it's funny how, you know, trends and, and waves go in, in gaming and not even, not just for gamers, but for game designers. You know, Kanan Lynch was in that same era as Army of Two, you know, these sort of high budget, almost blockbuster movie like co-op action games that have kind of got they kind of went away you know they kind of went away and Kane and Lynch the first one wasn't great the second one was a little better but it never quite lived up to its potential I would say of these two kind of anti-heroes but yeah Kane and Lynch and Kane and Lynch 2 were the last uh, two non-hitman games and then before that if you're if you're an old school Xbox gamer like me you may remember Freedom Fighters on the original Xbox, which was a really good sort of action strategy game. And a little fun fact about that game, it's, it was an original Xbox game. Remember, so this is the, this is the regular CRT, non-HD era. And if you had an HDTV, you, you know, it was 480p was what, that was, that was HD in the Xbox era, was just the, the regular 4x3 aspect ratio television but progressive uh, rather than interlaced. And uh, the game Freedom Fighters supported actual 720p HD out of the original Xbox, uh, which very, very, very few games did back then. And in fact, because very few people had the TVs, and obviously the box didn't have a ton of horsepower relative to the 360 that came after it, but... But there you go. Freedom Fighters was good stuff, and then the Kane and Lynch games. So I'll be very, very eager to see exactly what this new universe is in this new game that IO is creating. Okay, my friends, that will do it. Uh, say, well, you know what? Let's see. I'm trying to think if I should do a loot box question by myself <laughs> or not. Um, yeah, let's save it. I'll save it for another time. With, uh, with the rest of the crew, so that it's not just me babbling for too long. But thankfully, I'm very used to podcasting solo. That's how I first started, back when my uh, Xbox OXM podcast started, KOXM. It was just me for the beginning, and I learned a lot. If you Please do never go back and listen to those initial episodes where it was just me. They're really bad. Hopefully this one's less bad, but uh, I'm Ryan McCaffrey. Again, uh, thanks to Brandon Tyrell. And then big thanks to Leonard Boyarski and, uh, and Natai Padar as well from Obsidian Entertainment. I congratulate them on the upcoming launch of The Outer Worlds. Uh, I can't wait to dig into it myself. We'll have the review on IGN whenever the review embargo lifts, which I have no idea when it is. But uh, I am heading off to a preview event myself, so I'm going to be hitting the road here shortly. But we should be back at regular time next week. So until then... Happy gaming, my friends, and I, we, 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 not just I, we will see you next week.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.